This is Ginger Taylor, in many words. Harvard has accidentally demonstrated that COVID-19 gaslighting may cause depression. We've been hearing the word misinformation for a very long time. Um, really, 2015, I feel like, is the, the misinformation push because we kept getting up and saying, here are the facts. And then a representative of the medical industry would stand up and say, misinformation. And we were like, okay, correct us. Where are we wrong? Where's the debate? And then none came. So we have learned that the word misinformation is basically analogous, you know, you set this beautiful table, silverware and flowers and make it all gorgeous. And then they walk up and yell misinformation and just swipe everything off the table and then implant their own whatever propaganda laden garbage of the day talking points that were um, dispersed. So Harvard has now put out a paper by some of the world's most formerly respected institutions. Done at Mass General, Harvard Medical School, Rutgers University, Boston Children's, and Northwestern. And the lead author, uh, a man named Dr. Roy Perlis, I believe is how you pronounce his name, has um, taken responsibility for the whole kit and caboodle, which is nice to see somebody say, hey, buck stops with me. And he starts off the paper by saying that Dr. Perlis, quote, had full access to all the data in the study and takes responsibility for the integrity of the data and the accuracy of the data analysis. Turns out the integrity of the data and the analysis is, is nonsense because it was nonsense from the beginning. The study examines the potential relationship between depression and belief in COVID misinformation. So their premise is that, quote, misinformation about COVID-19 vaccination may contribute substantially to vaccine hesitancy and resistance. And as markers of belief in this misinformation, they ask participants to answer that, you know, yes, they believe or no, they do not believe or I don't know to four different statements. These are the statements that they use to assess vaccine uh, related misinformation. Quote, we assessed vaccine-related misinformation using four statements, which respondents were asked to rate as accurate, statement is true, inaccurate, statement is not true, or not sure. We selected these statements based on misinformation prevalent on social media platforms in the spring of 2021. Specific statements of misinformation include, quote, the COVID-19 vaccines will alter people's DNA. The COVID-19 vaccines contain microchips that could track people. The COVID-19 vaccines contain the lung tissue of aborted fetuses. And the COVID-19 vaccines can cause infertility, making it more difficult to get pregnant, unquote. At, at the end of the paper, there's a statement saying that um, participants were offered corrections on the misinformation so that they could be um, not, you know, so that they believe they're satisfied that they'd been corrected and no longer spread the misinformation they believe. They didn't say what that was in the paper. So I emailed the study's author, uh, Dr. Perlis, and asked him what was the information that was offered to them. And this is what he sent to me. Quote, for each of the four items of vaccine misinformation, we display, quote, and this is in all caps, this statement is not accurate. The vaccines do not, dot, 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 unquote, followed by whatever the misinformation item was. So he just said, nah, to them. No debate, no clarification, no nothing, just you're wrong. Um, and he's Harvard, so he's just right by fiat. So we are going to examine in the paper that I have uh, attached to this podcast, the four pillars of their misinformation and why people might actually believe this stuff. The first one was the DNA alteration. They said the COVID-19 vaccines will alter people's DNA. 
Um, of course, this isn't misinformation. It is open research into what exactly RNA being injected into somebody's body and into penetrating their cells in the presence of res- reverse transcriptase, that RNA gets rewritten in reverse order and delivered to the DNA. This is something that everybody learned. Well, anybody who's paying attention in biology 101 in college. And so there was at the immediate outset of this discussion, when the claim was made that, well, you know, these RNA vaccines cannot alter DNA, even Paul Offit had to admit, well, in the presence of reverse transcriptase, yes, it can, but then claimed there was no reverse transcriptase available, which is, again, nonsense. So here's the problem we have with Harvard, Dr. Bolas, declaring that this is impossible because it was Harvard that said it was possible in the first place. In December of 2020, before the mRNA vaccines were rolled out, Harvard put out a paper called SARS-CoV-2 RNA Reverse Transcribed and Integrated into the Human Genome, reading from the abstract. Quote, we found chimeric transcripts of consisting of viral fused to cellular sequences in published data sets of SARS-CoV-2 infected culture cells and primary cells of patients consistent with the transcription of viral sequences integrated into the genome. To experimentally corroborate the possibility of a viral retro integration, we described evidence that the SARS-CoV-2 RNA can be reverse transcribed in human cells by reverse transcriptase, RT, from line one elements or by HIV-1 RT, and that these DNA sequences can be integrated into the cell genome and subsequently be transcribed. Human endogenous line one expression was induced upon SARS-CoV-2 infection or by cytokine exposure into cultured cells. Suggesting a molecular mechanism for SARS-CoV-2 retrointegration in patients, this novel feature of SARS-CoV-2 infection may explain why patients can continue to produce viral RNA after recovery and suggest a new aspect of RNA virus replication. So, does Harvard believe that it put out misinformation in 2020? Or does it believe that the misinformation is putting out now in saying whatever they put out in 2020 was misinformation? This is worthy of a discussion. This is not worthy of just saying, not true, and moving on. Perhaps if the public did not believe Harvard when they said, yes, SARS-CoV-2 reverse transcriptase can alter DNA, MIT said the same thing in their paper called Reverse transcribed SARS-CoV-2 RNA can integrate into the genome of cultured human cells and can be expressed in patient-derived tissues. So, does Harvard claim that RNA from the virus, acquired naturally, can be subject to this reverse transcriptase insertion into the DNA, but that SARS-CoV-2 RNA inserted into the body by the vaccine cannot be subject to reverse transcriptase inserting into the genome? These are things that really need clarification. If Dr. Polis was interested in actually having a conversation, these are the questions I would ask him. And I did ask him. I sent this whole paper to him. I sent it to him on Friday. It's end of the day Monday. I'm going to assume he's not going to respond. Here's the thing. We're the beginning of the stages of entry of this question and all the other ones. And Perlis and company just insult people by being like, no, there's no discussion. Move on. And this doesn't even take into account the Inovio vaccine. So Inovio has a vaccine in phase two clinical trials, meaning people have already been injected with it. And it is a DNA vaccine. The purpose of the vaccine is to change the DNA of the human to fight against the virus. So even if it wasn't true at the time, certainly true now, and it's going to be true on a widespread basis once the Inovio vaccine is 
released to the public. The purpose of the vaccine is to alter the DNA of humans. Second, tracking chips. The COVID-19 vaccine contains microchips that could track people. This is the statement offered. I believe this is not a correct statement. I do not believe that the vaccine contains tracking chips. However, it was the media and the government that got this message out there into the ethos anyway. Confusion about this, first of all, has lasted for a long time as Bill Gates has talked for a long time about vaccine tracking and microchips and how these can be integrated to track people in Africa and in third world countries who don't have medical records that follow them. So this has always been a discussion about Bill Gates and his vaccine ideology and his plans for world domination vaccination. Then when Andrew Cuomo held press conferences to announce the rollout of the vaccine in New York, he took great pains to describe the tracking chips in the packaging that would be tracking the packages to their destination so they could keep track of the vaccine disbursement. Additionally, the Department of Defense had purchased syringes for the vaccines that had tracking chips on the syringes to track where and when they were being given on an individual basis. The language surrounding the reporting on these two things got really muddled by the press so that some people would read articles talking about vaccine tracking and the chips that were tracking the vaccines, but didn't distinguish that the vaccine tracking chips were on the package or on the outside of the syringe instead of being on the inside of the syringe. So naturally, people got a little concerned. What could have ended that very quickly was the pharmaceutical companies or the Department of HHS or the Department of Defense coming out and simply saying, oh, no, there's no tracking chips inside the syringe. They're on the outside of the syringe and in the packaging. But pharma never did that. Pfizer didn't do it. Moderna didn't do it. So people were left with questions and it continues to circulate. And I am trying to convince people that, no, I don't think that there are any nanobots in the uh, syringe. Couldn't offer them official responses by Pfizer. So I couldn't even really shut that down. All they had to do was say, oh, no, 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 everybody, everything's fine. It's on the outside of the packaging. There is no tracking chips inside the vaccine itself. To add to the problem, Pfizer CEO Albert Barola, I can't say, I don't know how to say his name. He had done several years ago, I think probably 2018, had done an event where he described the digital pill that FDA had approved, that when you took the pill, it would transmit a signal to the medical establishment tracking your medical care to tell you that you were being compliant with taking your medication. So the idea that it was just absurd that there was something inside of a medication or a vaccine that could track what's going on or could transmit a signal, it wasn't that absurd for anybody who's following biotechnology advances. So instead of saying, hey, this isn't the same as the digital pill from FDA, hey, there is no tracking system inside the vaccine solution, they just started putting out articles mocking people and insulting them for being confused about the confusing reporting. So rather than just saying, oh, hey, there's been a big misunderstanding, here's the official statement about this, they called people names, called them paranoid, they engendered more distrust, they bullied them. And of course, after this was done, and after the study participants and answered the questions, he issued a statement for them saying, the vaccines do not contain microchips that can track people. But I want to know what's his source, because I need an official source to be able to say that. Because I can't just make fun of people when they come up with stuff that is out of the blue or doesn't have any backing. I have to respectfully teach them. I have to give them, look, this is the best information I can find. So I would like to know from Dr. Perlis, what is your source so that I can confidently tell other people those things without trying to make them feel bad about themselves? Abortion. The COVID-19 vaccines contain the lung tissue of aborted fetuses. Now, this is misinformation only in that lungs are not retinas. 
because the Johnson and Johnson vaccines contain the remains of the boy whose retinas were used to create the cell solution that the vaccine was grown in. We all know and have been talking for a long time about the fact that there are a number of children who were sacrificed, their lungs, their kidneys, their eyes were harvested from their bodies. Those organs were placed in a solution to dissolve the connective tissue between the cells. Those cells were then frozen or altered and then frozen and then used for a variety of purposes, one of which is to create growth mediums so that viruses and bacteria can be grown for use in vaccines. This is a very contentious matter. It is one of the reasons I will not participate in the vaccine program anymore. And an increasing number of people won't because of those of us who believe that abortion is murder and those of us who believe that human trafficking is wrong are not okay with the human trafficking of the organs of preborn children. What Perlis and his friends have done is they have confused two different cell lines. The truth is that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses the Percy 6 cell line of a little baby boy who was torn from his mother's womb and whose eyes were used for science. The Moderna and Pfizer vaccines employed the use of human embryonic kidney cells. The cell line specifically, HEK293, was taken from a little girl. The cell line was used first really for all COVID-19 vaccines because it was used to map the SARS-CoV-2 virus in the first place. So that particular cell line, human embryonic kidney cell line, has been used by every vaccine from the outside of this research. It is then used again by the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines to test batches of the vaccine. I shouldn't be calling it a vaccine. I know it's a, it's a gene therapy. However, for purposes of this podcast, I will be using the word quote-unquote vaccine. So either Dr. Polis and his team didn't know that two different cell lines are being used in quote-unquote the vaccines, or they didn't bother to look, or they just believe what they want to believe. I, I have a hard time thinking they confuse these two things on purpose. I think they just didn't do their research. Now, it is very, very understandable that random members of the public believe that there are kidney cells or kidney cell remains in the vaccine. It is not acceptable that Dr. Polis and his team didn't do basic research to be able to find out what the truth is and what the quote-unquote misinformation is. The truth is the Johnson & Johnson vaccines and the AstraZeneca vaccines, but they aren't being used in the United States, so I'm not bringing them into this, use Percy 6 cell lines. And the truth is the process by which those cell lines are used to grow this results in the DNA and the blood proteins of these children being in the final solution that is injected into the vaccine. Now, I didn't want to deal with this reality for years. I understand why it is so hard to face this. However, you don't get to be a Harvard MD and dispense this kind of judgment on the world without knowing what you're talking about. So no grace is offered to him here because the truth is people who take the Johnson & Johnson vaccine are having human proteins and human DNA, at least fragments, injected into them. And it says so. Let me read to you the fact sheet for healthcare providers administering a vaccine, vaccine providers, emergency youth authorization, EUA, of the Janssen COVID-19 vaccine to prevent coronavirus disease 2019. This is from page 18. Quote, the AD26 vector expressing the SARS-CoV-2S protein is grown in PER-C6 TETR cells in media containing amino acids and no animal-derived proteins. After the propagation, the vaccine is processed through several purification steps formulated with inactive ingredients and filled into vials. Each 0.5 milliliter dose of Janssen COVID-19 vaccine is formulated to contain virus particles and the following 
inactive ingredients, citric acid monohydrate, trisodium citrate dihydrate, 2-hydroxy-B cyclodextrin, polysorbate 80, sodium chloride. Each dose may also contain residual amounts of host cell proteins and or host cell DNA. Those are the cells of the child that we have named Percy, whose eyes were taken for medical research without his consent. Thus, those who believe the misinformation that COVID-19 vaccines contain the lung tissue of aborted fetuses are just wrong on the details. But they are much closer to the truth than Dr. Perlis and his team. But Dr. Perlis told the study participants at the conclusion of the study that the vaccines do not contain the lung tissue of aborted fetuses. Fertility. The final mocking point by Dr. Perlis is the COVID-19 vaccines can cause infertility and make it more difficult to get pregnant. When this questionnaire was handed out to his uh, study participants in April of 2021, there was no information on the impacts of these vaccines on fertility. Matter of fact, nobody even asked the question until March of 2021. The vaccines were released in late December. By March of 2021, enough women had been claiming about the reproductive impacts of these vaccines online that people started to ask formal questions. Two researchers at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign started looking into it and put together a questionnaire that they put online for women to start answering questions formally about what was going on in their health. The reproductive survey became available to the public on April 7th, and by April 19th, researchers had reported that they had received more than 25,000 responses. Now, you don't receive 25,000 responses if nothing's happening. That's a huge response in a very short period of time that a lot of women took the time to share what was going on with them. Now, Perlis had decided that this was information before the question was even asked on April 7th. And by the time he finished taking the survey in July, he still had no data. What is interesting is the same week that this paper came out last week is the first time we might have real data to start answering this question. The information came Monday a week ago in hearings held by Senator Ron Johnson on vaccine safety and efficacy, reporting on testimony that was given at the hearing. The Blaze reports this. Quote, in a declaration under penalty of perjury that Wren's plans to use in federal court, Dr. Samuel Sigloff, Peter Chambers, and Teresa Long, three military doctors, revealed that there has been a 300% increase in DMED codes registered for miscarriages in the military in 2021 over the five-year average. The five-year average was 1,499 codes for miscarriages per year. During the first 10 months of 2021, it was 4,182. Just stunning. The government and the pharmaceutical industry have always decried VAERS, saying it's not accurate. It's their system, but it's not accurate, and they can't possibly fix it. What happened here is, because the Department of Defense keeps better records on what's actually going on with their patients, they accidentally captured an epidemic of miscarriages and other ill health effects that we're that hopefully we'll have all the data on very shortly. But Dr. Perlis arrogantly told study participants at the conclusion of the study that vaccines do not cause infertility, making it more difficult to get pregnant. So here's my question for Dr. Perlis. Is he liable for this false claim? Is he liable financially? Is he liable ethically? Is he liable morally? Harvard doctors have a power that is unmatched in society. They make a proclamation with no data whatsoever and just assume to be true before anybody has any systematic questioning whatsoever of this, I believe that he has a moral responsibility here. Ethics? Gosh, what do ethics mean anymore in medicine? They mean whatever the hired gun that you've hired to say whatever you've done is ethical means. So this brings me to what this really is about. 
What this really is about is gaslighting. The people who have taken this study have been gaslighted. They took claims that were factually true or possibly true or easily understood to be true, declared them false, and then said, how do you feel? Which brings us to gaslighting. They've got a really good definition in Webster's. The psychological manipulation of a person, usually over an extended period of time, that causes the victim to question the validity of their own thoughts, perceptions of reality or memory, and typically leads to confusion, loss of confidence and self-esteem, uncertainty of one's emotional mental stability, and dependency on the perpetrator. They say that gaslighting can be a very effective tool for the abuser to control an individual. It's done slowly so the victim writes off the event as a one-off or oddity and doesn't realize they're being controlled and manipulated. Melissa Spinner, quote, gaslighting can happen in any relationship circumstance, including between friends and family members, not just in couple relationships, unquote. Dina Borknight, quote, this is a classic gaslighting technique, telling victims that others are crazy and lying and that the gaslighter is the only source for true information. It makes victims question their reality unquote, Stephanie Sarkis. If that is not what Harvard is doing here, I don't know what it is. The medical establishment is the only source of true information. Not Rand Paul, not other Harvard, not MIT, not all of those doctors testifying in the Senate, and not even your own lion eyes. Harvard is abusing their study participants and they're abusing the public. Of course, we've watched this happen for years. And this is the bad old days of psychiatry, right? A woman who was a problem back in the day was crazy was histrionic. She had a floating uterus. She needed to be put away for her own good. If you brought the bad news to the people in the medical profession who didn't want to hear it, you were crazy and you were misinformed and you needed treatment. And there's a name for this. It's called the Semmelweis reflex. Those of you who've read my chapter in uh, Vaccine Epidemic um, will be familiar with this. And I'm going to read part of it to you. I wrote, just as government hails vaccines as a cornerstone of public health, the medical community upholds vaccination as a miracle of modern medicine. If it seems almost impossible that the public denial of vaccine injury could exist on such a huge scale, it should be recognized that there is an established precedent for such a phenomenon. In the mid-1800s in Vienna, Austria, mothers were dying shortly after childbirth from a now extinct illness known as puerperal fever or childbed fever. A woman entering the hospital to give birth had roughly a 16% chance that she would die before taking her baby home. The mortality rate of mothers giving birth in the midwife centers, however, was lower. In 1847, Ignaz Semmelweis, a professor of obstetrics at the University of Pest, performed an autopsy on a colleague who had died from the fever and then fell ill with it himself. He postulated that small particles of the disease may have been left on his hands and surmised that the maternal death rate from childbed fever was also high because doctors and medical students at the teaching hospital were not properly washing their hands after exams and autopsies of fever patients before delivering newborns. He instituted new sterilization guidelines and the death rate in the obstetrics and gynecology ward fell to 1.27%. When someone Weiss's colleagues published the information, rather than finding it as a cause for celebration, the medical community lashed out against Semmelweis. He was mocked, attacked, and run out of the profession. He subsequently suffered a nervous breakdown. Semmelweis was invited by a colleague to visit an asylum for the mentally ill under the pretense of offering his professional opinion. But instead, he was locked inside, where he died two weeks later. Conflicting stories report that he died after being physically assaulted by the staff, or alternatively, that he died from puerperal fever. Two decades would pass after Semmelweis' discovery before the work of Valerie Prestor and Joseph Lister helped to usher in the modern era of sanitation and hygiene, including medical sterilization. 
and serving the public, some always delivered the unwelcome news to doctors that they were largely responsible for the deaths of new mothers. It was bad news that they were not prepared to hear. This phenomenon has come to be known as the Semmelweis reflex, the reflex-like rejection, often in the medical community, of new scientific information without proper investigation. Today's vaccine injury denialism is a modern-day Semmelweis reflex. Pediatricians who care passionately about the welfare of children understandably find repulsive the idea that autism is largely iatrogenic. Statements offered by government agencies like HHS and the CDC and the medical professionals as in the AAP, offer plausible deniability to those who do not want to know or admit that these vaccines they're administering are capable of causing serious damage to a population, let alone to individual children in their own practices. So we have been hearing what has been termed the nuts and sluts defense from an industry that we have accused of abusing our children for many years, right? Jenny McCarthy is a slut. All you moms are crazy. We exonerate ourselves from any wrongdoing. And we don't even have to examine our own pronouncements to see if they line up with science. What Harvard has done here is to refine the shameful act of punching down to a science, telling them that they are wrong, and then assessing them for depression. They're crazy. They're nuts. Here's what I've written below. These men of hubris use increasingly elevated means, measures, and maths to put forth the same messages that have been failing them for years, but somehow believe it's going to work this time. Meanwhile, they continue to destroy public trust while they study the destruction of public trust and and have no idea how public trust is vanishing. It's ridiculous. And we've been saying this to them. I've been saying it for at least 15 years now. When you lie to people, they stop trusting you. When you injure people, they no longer trust you. When you call them crazy for believing what is true and verifiably true, they stop trusting you. And that you keep taking data on why these people not trusting us. There's also this other little nugget that they put in the paper, and I'm calling this the chilling effect artifact. They reported, quote, however, using a subset of participants from the first wave who returned for the second, we found that depressive symptoms preceded misinformation emergence, suggesting that misinformation was unlikely to cause depression per se. So they had two rounds. They did questionnaires in April and May, and then they asked all those people to take the questionnaire again in June and July. But there was something that happened in that time period, which is very, very relevant. They report that in April-May, people reported less misinformation, but more depression. That in the subsequent rounds, they were reporting more misinformation. So you can't say that believing misinformation causes depression. But they don't think about what happened between April and July. In April, nobody was allowed to talk about what they thought. If you believe that there was something hinky going on, you weren't allowed to say it. And the thing that you absolutely could not talk about was the quote-unquote lab leak theory. You were the height of a conspiracy theorist if you believed that a lab leak from a Chinese lab might be responsible for all this. But then what happened between April and July and the first round of the questionnaire and the second round of the questionnaire was that Rand Paul challenged Anthony Fauci and called him out for being involved in gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab with coronaviruses. And the pattern happening between these two is Rand calls out Fauci, the media goes after Rand. Sometime in the next few weeks, we find out Rand was right. Then again, Rand goes after Fauci. Fauci defends himself. How dare you? What does he say? You do not know what you are talking about, Senator Paul. And then, of course, Senator Paul turns out he knew what he was talking about. So whereas in April, you could not talk about government corruption in this. By the middle of the summer, we could talk about it. And by the end of the summer, it was documented fact. So it could be those people who did not report disbelief 
in the public narrative in April, didn't trust the narrative, however, didn't feel safe enough to report that until June or July. The chilling effect is real. And if people think they will be labeled a conspiracy theorist, marginalized further, treated like garbage, they're not going to volunteer to admit to Harvard that they don't believe the official narrative. So it seems much more likely that this phenomenon they discovered supports the idea that it's not the misinformation that is the problem. It's the fact that those taking this study are being abused in society. And we know that anybody not respecting the official narrative and the high poobah and whatever is told by the media and the dictates of the CDC is treated poorly. So what I think this paper got right is I think there is a correlation between the population studied, quote unquote, misinformation, fools, and depression. Because these are the people that have been officially abused by the public. And I'm one of these people because I don't believe the official narrative by any stretch of the imagination. And we are now officially, from official channels, being decried by our own presidents and prime ministers in the West. We have Justin Trudeau. We all know people are deciding whether or not they're willing to get vaccinated. And we will do our very best to try to convince them. However, there is still a part of the population that is fiercely against it. And here's how he describes this. They don't believe in science progress, and they are very often misogynistic and racist. It is a very small group of people, but that doesn't shy away from the fact that they're taking up some space. This leads us as a leader and as a country to make a choice. Do we tolerate these people? Over 80% of the population of Quebec have done their duty by getting the shot. They are obviously not the issue in this situation. And then we have the French prime minister who simply declared the unvaccinated non-citizens. Joe Biden, of course, has now famously put a death curse on the unvaccinated in an official WhiteHouse.gov press release. He said, we are intent on not letting Omicron disrupt work and school for the vaccine. You've done the right thing and we will get through this. For the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for yourselves, your family and the hospitals you may soon overwhelm. That's a death curse. You will die. Do you think that maybe statements like this and treatment like this from official sources might make people depressed? I'm thinking that's probably a much more likely mechanism for, well, they don't even give a mechanism. For this paper, they just said, well, gosh, well, we don't know why. But belief in misinformation correlates to depression. Like when you treat people badly, it's depressing. It's the gaslighting. It's the lying. It's the abuse. It's the segregation from society. I don't believe that people at Harvard are stupid. So what was the conversation before this study was put together? They have to know what they're doing. And this is not a new idea. The Bible says, oppression makes a wise man mad. Ecclesiastes 7.7. When you have somebody who is intelligent enough to read for themselves and make their own decisions, and you try to oppress them, they don't sit by and go, oh, well, I guess I'll just watch TV. It makes them crazy. As someone Weiss was made crazy. You defend yourself. You want to believe that the world is rational. And it is incredibly discouraging when you find out the world is not rational. So Perlis and Mitterrand, Biden and Trudeau, what they've done is to devalue, to other, to exclude, to marginalize us. Anybody who's not on board with, we're all in this together, is a non-citizen and other. I have experienced this this year. And the antidote that I have found to this is just looking to the Lord for my value. He says that there's nothing I can do separate myself from the love of God. And I'm going to go ahead and believe that 
rather than believing those who are pushing this pharmaceutical agenda and telling me that I do not have value and I am not to be tolerated. And I will continue to pursue the real truth in all of this as it unfolds, repenting as I go, retracting as I need to. And I ask that you consider joining me in this in realizing that what these men are saying about us isn't true, that Harvard is no longer Harvard, that these are puppets in a system that is broken and gasping for air. And we have seen what is happening in Canada this weekend. And we see that we are becoming the majority and it terrifies them. So don't let the quote unquote scientists who are really just cogs in a wheel get you down. We have each other and we have the truth. And to Dr. Perlis, who what I would love to hear from and to hear that he is repenting of this garbage that he's put out devaluing people, there is an old saying, you can always tell a Harvard man, but you can't tell him much. This has been Ginger Taylor, in many words, 